God, Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, as we think about heaven's praise, we know that ours falls way short. Even at our best, even at our loudest, even at our most emotional, Lord, we're, we're not yet reflecting your glory, your goodness, your promises in our thoughts and in our hearts and in our voices and in our bodies like we should. Where we do it a little bit, where there's some reflection of your greatness in singing here this morning, we give you thanks for it. It's your doing. Lord, we long for more. We long for great praise. We long to see your will done on this earth like it's done in heaven. So we pray that your kingdom would come here in our midst this morning. We pray it would continue to come here in our midst this morning as we sit under your word, as we listen, as we worship through stillness, as we worship through the silence of hearing you speak to us from your word. Lord, may it be worship. May it be even a growing in our worship. May our minds and our hearts meld together in a celebration of truth, of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what else he will do in his great plan. So give encouragement this morning. Give strength. We know of so many families, Lord, going through great suffering. Your word is enough. Your spirit at work is sufficient. So Spirit, we pray you'd come in power to illuminate your word to us, to to give us an eternal perspective, to get us outside of ourselves, to cause us to trust you, Lord, to know that you're sure, you're mighty, you're good, you're wise, you're near. Lord, communicate that to us today in a fresh way, in a deeper way. Do it from your word. Do it by your spirit. Do it for your glory. Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. And if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke, the third book of the New Testament. We've been working our way through Luke, and today we're going to look at two different sections of Luke's gospel account. Because though they're separated by a few chapters, they talk about the same thing. When? They talk about when. When will the end be? When will the kingdom come? When will there be divine, eternal judgment? When will the Messiah return? We see from Luke that he's come, but when will he come back? Now, these are questions that people have been asking for millennia, sometimes in the church and sometimes not, sometimes religious, sometimes not religious. It's a question entertained by the tabloids, When will the earth end? When will it be destroyed? The Discovery Channel, scientists, Nostradamus is trying to, you know, tell us when that is. Cults are trying to figure it out. Of course, Christians care about this. And in Jesus' day, it's both the Pharisees and his own disciples who are asking him questions about when. When will the end be? When will the kingdom finally come? And Jesus' answer to that question of when might surprise us. He doesn't say that there'll be clear signs at the end which tell us that it's very end, that it's the end of the end, where it's now time for us to straighten up. 
where it's the last minute moment to get right. He doesn't say there'll be that kind of sign. And yet he doesn't say there won't be any signs at all. His answer is actually there are signs everywhere. There are signs all around us, signs all the time. It's like that late 60s song done better by Tesla in the 80s. Sign, sign, everywhere a sign. Before living in New Mexico, we lived in Denver. Actually, Golden, west end of Denver, right before you get to the foothills, which lead to the Rocky Mountains. And so we've driven in and out of the Rocky Mountains many times. My wife even more, because she's from Denver. And apart from the spectacular view of driving through the Rocky Mountains, one of the most interesting things as you're driving from the mountains back into town are the road signs. You're going downhill, mind you, seriously downhill. You drop from 11,000 feet at the Eisenhower Tunnel down to 5,000 feet in the city in, of course, about 30, 40 miles. Not very much, but a very big drop. And so there are these sharp turns, and so there are these signs to truckers all the way down into the city, which aren't your typical sign jargon that usually are written by engineers, right? Very unclever, very unartistic, very predictable. Well, these are attention-grabbing. They say things like, truckers, are your brakes cool? Truckers, don't be fooled, you're not down yet. Truckers, tape Tap your brakes here. Make sure, make sure they work. If not, pray. It doesn't say that. But <laughs> that kind of thing. Steep curve ahead. You're not down yet. Now, now, why did someone come up with this idea of unusual, attention-grabbing signs that kind of break the mold for what signs usually are? Well, it's not for entertainment. It's not Western hospitality. It's it's because there are always so many signs on the highway, and unless we're looking for our turnoff, we don't pay attention to most of them, which is fine on a normal highway, a pretty flat highway. When you see a turn coming, by the time you get to it, you can slow down if you need to and make the turn. If on I-70 coming from the Rocky Mountains down to Denver, you didn't look at the signs and waited to actually see the turn to hit the brakes and make the turn, You'd go off the cliff. You can't do it, especially if you're a truck with tons, literally tons behind you. So these unusual signs grab attention and try to keep you focused, try to keep it abnormal so you're looking for the next sign to see what it's going to say, if it's going to say something even weirder, more abnormal. But what happens if the warning signs become white noise? like the signs usually are to most of us when we're driving on a normal road. We we see the green and white zip past. Green sign, white letters. We don't know what it said. It doesn't really matter. We know it's not our stop. But we know the road is straight right in front of us through Nebraska. So we're coasting, not paying attention. But what happens if the, the warning signs around us just become blurs, green and white blurs that pass by and we pay no attention and through life we coast. We're oblivious. Well, God has given us signs of the times, signs of the age, foreshadows of the return of Christ. Let's look at Luke 17 and see what they are. We'll look at Luke 17 and then go to Luke 21, again, because they talk about the same kind of thing. 
Let's start reading in verse 20 of Luke 17. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see the one of the days of the Son of Man, and you'll not see it. They'll say to you, Look there! Or, look here, don't go away and don't run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It's the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, selling, they were planting, they were building. But on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there'll be two in one bed and one will be taken, the other left. There'll be two women grinding at the same place and one will be taken and the other left. Two men in the field, one will be taken And the other left. And answering, the disciples said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Well, you see in your notes, if you're following along in the bulletin sermon notes there, we've got three sections to cover here. One in Luke 17, then a couple in Luke 21. Luke 17 is talking about the nature of the coming kingdom. It starts with this question from the Pharisees about when the kingdom of God is coming. Verse 20. And then Jesus answers their question in about four different ways. First, the kingdom is now, and say it with me, guess. It's probably behind me already, isn't it? No, it's not. Good. Guess. It's now and not yet. Right. We say that a lot around here. The kingdom is now and it's not yet. It describes this period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Jesus has brought the kingdom. It's not a kingdom that has a physical entity about it, a physical reality about it. You can't go and touch it. It's not visible. It's not military power. It's not a political entity per se. Jesus says in verse 21, it's already in your midst. John the Baptist came preaching before Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's close. And then Jesus came and said, yeah, the kingdom is here. It's not something you can touch. It's not something we fight over with swords. Peter, put your sword away. Or like Jesus says to Pilate in John 18, I am a king. I do have a kingdom. My kingdom is here. But it's not of this world. If it were of this world, my disciples would fight. They'd go to war, but they don't. It's not of this world. Jesus brought this new kingdom to earth in his first coming, but it's still not yet in another sense. In verse 22, Jesus says, 
something will be future. Notice the word will. The days will come. Whatever he's going to say, we know it's going to be future. He's already said the kingdom's here, but then he talks about what will happen. There's a not yet. And the rest of this chapter, in fact, goes on to discuss what's not yet. The kingdom that isn't yet here. The king, in a sense, who isn't yet visibly, demonstrably over all things, ruling and reigning like he will one day in the end. It's now and not yet, but it's secondly visible and unmistakable when it comes. It will be visible. In verse 23, remember he's concerned about those who lead the disciples away by saying, there it is, or here it is, or here's the guy, here's the Messiah returned. Jesus says, don't go after them. Don't, don't listen. Don't, don't go out to the field to see if it's really there when they said it was there. When it's there, you'll know it. When he comes again, no one will have to tell you. He's here. You'll know it. It'll be like lightning, he says. Lightning's visible. Verse 24, it's public, it's unmistakable, it fills the sky. When it flashes here in the east, you see it over there in the west. Notice that there's nothing of a secret rapture here. I'm going to step on your toes, but put your guard down. This is something good Christians can disagree on, right? How this all gets fleshed out in the end, Christians can disagree on. We believe as a church This is not something Christians should divide over. You shouldn't leave because you have a different view of the end than I do. What we can agree on are these things God tells us will happen and what we do in light of those things. We pray. We encourage each other. We're watchful. We know he will come back. You might have this thing first and that thing after, and I may have it reversed, but come on. Let's not divide over that. That said, let me go ahead and offer this up. There's nothing of a secret rapture here where some people just disappear and then the rest are left scratching their heads. This is very public, very unmistakable. That's exactly why Jesus says you won't have to go see it. Everyone will know it. It's just like in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is talking about a rapture, of being caught up together with him. It's not secret. It's not, it's not stealthy. Jesus announces it with a loud voice, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, with a loud trumpet, with the voice of archangels. That doesn't sound too secretive. It sounds loud. And when it comes back to Luke 17, it will be sudden and unexpected, thirdly. Remember, lightning striking is the word picture there, which is visible and unmistakable, but it's also sudden. No one can see lightning coming and dodge it. You you don't say, oh, look, it's coming. Good thing I moved. You know, it almost got me. No one has done that. Lightning travels at 3,700 miles per second, if I'm not mistaken, which means that it's basically instantaneous, which means as soon as you see it coming down, Well, you probably didn't see it coming down. It hit you. You'll know it once it strikes near you, but you won't know it's coming right before it does. You might see clouds forming. You might see signs of a possible lightning storm, but you don't know lightning will strike here until it does. It's that fast, and his coming will be like lightning. His coming will be like God's judgment in Noah's day. Look at verse 26. It'll be like the days of Noah. 
In Noah's day, judgment was promised. Noah preached it. But no one in his town listened to him. So when the floods of judgment came, they were overtaken by him. Look at verse 28, that list of things that they were going about in Lot's day when, when judgment came upon Sodom. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. All fine things. So Jesus isn't saying that these things aren't good for Christians to do. He's not saying, hey, Jesus is coming back. So therefore, don't eat. Therefore, don't marry. Therefore, don't sell. Therefore, don't buy. No, he's not saying that. His point is that right before the flood and right before the destruction of Sodom, these are examples of how the people ignore judgment. These are examples in the days of Noah, how they ignored Noah's preaching about the judgment to come. And so it's a horrible irony that they're selling clothes when a flood's about to come. Horrible irony that they're buying land when it's about to be buried under miles of water. Jesus gives us some implications here. He tells us, be prepared. He tells us, in essence, be ready to leave if you're prepared, if you're his, if he's coming for you. He's either coming in your redemption or he's coming in recompense. He's either coming for your jubilee, or he's coming in your judgment. But he is coming. Philippians 2 makes this so clear. The name of Jesus, every knee eventually will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will bow. You either bow now in saving union with this Christ King, or you will bow under his judgment when he returns. He came as a lamb in his first coming, and he will come as a lion in his second coming. He tells us also not to cling to stuff. Look at verse 31. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. Likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. We've just said that the coming is sudden. Why is Jesus saying here, when you see it coming, don't go into the house and get stuff? Well, because he's using the analogy, remember, of Noah and the, the analogy of Lot, the destruction of Noah's time, the destruction of Sodom in Lot's time. He's saying, no one who's sensible in those situations says, oh, a flood's coming. I better, not like Noah's flood anyway, maybe a flood that we would get here or they'd get maybe in the Midwest, go slowly up. In Noah's flood, no one would say, I need to run in and get my favorite quilt or my favorite hat or even pictures of the kids. At some point, you know pictures of the kids can go, but kids must live, and so let's get the kids out of here. No one goes back into the house. It represents clinging to stuff. Like verse 33 says, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. If you try to maintain your same life, you'd lose it. But those who are willing to lose it for Christ's sake would be redeemed, preserved. He says, don't look back. Verse 32, don't be like Lot's wife. Three pregnant words. Remember Lot's wife. A reference to Genesis 19. We've already talked about it, the destruction of the city of Sodom, where God chose to spare Abram and his family, and part of his family was his nephew Lot in Lot's family. God told him that destruction was coming, get out of this city. And he said, as you go, don't look 
back. And Lot's wife looked back. And what happened? She was immediately turned into a chunk of salt. It says pillar of salt, but we don't really talk about pillars unless it's on a a column on a house or something. She got turned into a big chunk of salt. That's it. She's done. Because she looked back. Why? Why is that so bad? Well, looking back reflected her mixed emotions about what she was leaving behind and, and what was being destroyed behind her. She knew enough to leave, but not enough to be saved. Get this. She had enough faith to go. Not enough faith to truly trust the judge. She desired to avoid destruction. But if there is a rivalry between what's behind her, stuff, possessions, family, home, familiarity, and God, her eyes went back to the stuff or to the family or to familiarity, to a hometown, to people, to friends, whatever. It doesn't matter what she looked back at. It just matters that she looked back. She took her eyes off God and where he said they should go. Now think of what Hebrews says of Abraham where he proved to be the exact opposite of Lot's wife, not only when he first left Ur of the Chaldees, the first calling, but here also as he leaves Sodom with Lot and his family. Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And so by faith he lived as an alien, before getting to the land of promise. and In a foreign land, dwelling with tents, in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Now notice verse 10 here. For he was looking for the city which has foundations and whose architect and builder is God. The only reason he could leave home is because he knew God was ultimate home. Even heaven was ultimate home. He lived in tents. He lived with nowhere really to call home because God was bringing him a home that he couldn't imagine. So no surprise that Jesus said, back in Luke chapter 9, I believe, no one, after putting their hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, don't look back. Look to Christ. Jesus also tells us in Luke 17 that it will be personal and universal when he comes. It'll be personal. That's what's represented in verse 34. Two people laying in the same bed. Maybe husband and wife. Hopefully, husband and wife. (laughs) Laying in the same bed and one is taken, the other one is left. Now, scholars debate whether the one taken is taken in rapture up to heaven or is taken in judgment. I would lean towards the latter, that he's taken in judgment. There's nothing here about being caught up into heaven like there is elsewhere in Scripture. It's true. It's a biblical thing. Yes, there's a resurrection at the end. But I think Jesus is describing this in a powerful way, an intimate way, a personal way. Imagine you and a person, your friend or your spouse, your kid, your coworker, next to each other and one taken and the other left. I think the taken means taken 
in judgment, taken away. Notice what's stressed in verse 37. It's that his coming will be universal. You can't see that at first. The disciples ask Jesus, where will all this happen? And then Jesus' answer is kind of cryptic. He says, where the dead body is, there vultures will be also. What? Almost sounds like that's the answer to a different question. And I think that's the point. Jesus doesn't exactly answer them. When they say where, they think this is located in one place. Tell us where we should avoid. You know, what places should we stay out of? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, where all the dead bodies are, that's where the vultures will be. Where's that? What he's implying is everywhere. Everywhere dead bodies are, where there are vultures, they come down and they eat. That's how you'll know where it is. You'll see dead bodies. You'll see vultures. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Now go to Luke 21 for the rest of our time. Luke 21 is the longest part of Luke that deals with the return of Christ, the end time. And it doesn't just talk about the end of the end. It talks about the end, which, believe it or not, began with Jesus' first coming. But he gives warning signs here. We could call this second section the warning signs of the coming kingdom. And it starts like Kind of like the the Luke 17 passage did with the Pharisees questioning about when. Notice verse 7, Luke 21, verse 7, the disciples asked Jesus a similar question. When will these things happen? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And then Jesus' answer stretches from here all the way to the end of the chapter. He's going to tell them about signs. He says in verse 8, one sign is false teachers. Some will say, I'm he, I'm the one, I came back. Some will be false messiahs, that's a sign of the coming of the kingdom. Verse 9, he says, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Verse 10, he says, kingdom will be against kingdom. There are going to be wars. Okay, tuck those away. But then notice the second half of verse 9, where we get an interpretive key. An interpretive key, that's what I'd call it. Second half of verse 9 says, These things must take place first, but the end does not immediately follow. Now, remember the disciples asked, When are these things going to happen? Literally, they say, When? What's the sign that will tell us that you're coming? These things are about to take place. By about to take place, by about there, they mean We'll know it's right at the edge of the time. We're now putting our toes over the cliff of eternity, of your plan. And Jesus gives them signs, but not the kind of signs that his disciples were hoping for. He doesn't give the kind of signs that say, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's literally right around the corner. It's going to happen very, very closely. No. He's saying that these signs do not tell us when the end is about to take place. I think he's saying that these signs tell us over and over and over again, in fact, that the end is not yet. People ask me often, do you think we're living in the last days? I say, yeah. We have been since Jesus. 
Do a word study of last days, you'll see. When people say, do you think the end is near? I say, I do. They go, really? (laughs) Because you're a pastor, you're supposed to know, right? If you tell people the end is near, they freak out. Um, And I say, yeah, the end is near. Jesus said so 2,000 years ago. He did. Now, let me show you what I mean. He mentions four other signs in what follows. In verse 11, the first one is natural disasters. He talks about earthquakes, plagues, famines. These will be signs of the coming of the kingdom. And they were happening in Jesus' day, weren't they? They're happening in our day. Then he moves to the second one. We'll come back to natural disasters in a minute, but... Verses 12 to 19 show us persecution as one of the signs of the coming of the kingdom. Look at verse 12. He says, Before all these things, you, they will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They'll deliver you into the synagogues and prisons. They'll bring you before kings and governors for my namesake. Verse 16, you'll be betrayed by parents. Relatives and friends will hand you over to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name. Persecution will be part of this age, as it was in Jesus' time. Some of Jesus' disciples were killed just as he was. You begin to read Acts, and you see very quickly, martyrdom becomes no significant part of the church's, part of being the church, part of being its witness. Did you know the Greek word for witness is a word that sounds like martyr. It eventually became what we know today as martyr. They witnessed so much unto death that their witness became associated with death. We call it today martyrdom, which we think means dying for a cause, which it does, but it used to just mean witness. You can see a small evolution of that word in the New Testament. We're now in Revelation, say, a later book. It's not just being used for witness. It's being used for witness unto death. Persecution is part of it, but it's always been part of it. And then you have this third one, destruction of the temple. Look at verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And look at the end of verse 24, second half of verse 24. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. How is this referring to the destruction of the temple? We'll back up to verse 5. We skip this, but this is how this whole ball got rolling in the conversation here. Verse 5, while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, Jesus said, as for these things which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And sure enough, this is exactly what happened in A.D. 70. The Romans ransacked Jerusalem. They killed Josephus, the historian of the first century, suggests that they killed 1.1 million Jews in a weekend. They destroyed their temple. Hearing the prediction of Jesus, hear that they would see the temple destroyed, had to be absolutely shocking. More shocking than anything we can relate to. If you heard Desert Springs Church building is going to be just crushed soon, you might say, oh, bummer. Do we have insurance? (laughs) Yes, the answer is yes, we do. 
if you heard that the White House was going to be decimated by terrorists. You'd think, you've got to be kidding me. Or, or the Capitol. You, you think, I've got to be kidding me. That's going to be horrible. Okay, but that's just a political part of our world. This was political and religious. Yeah, the White House and yeah, the Capitol are pretty and nice. They're ornate somewhat, but the temple had been under construction, renovation for the last 60 years when Jesus had been saying this. It had grown huge. Always a new addition here. Always more gold there. Some said that it shined so brightly on the walls that were all gold that when the sun hit it, it was as bright as the sun itself when it shined back at you. Other parts weren't gold. They were white marble. And some of the stones used to build these walls were 40 feet long of solid marble, weighing 100 tons. That's what Jesus is saying is going to get knocked over. And they were purest white of white marble. We can hardly get right. We can hardly understand how shocking this prediction and the later fulfillment of it would have been. But he did predict it. He told us in John chapter 2, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it took us 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, John tells us, he was speaking of the temple, his body. On the one hand, Jesus is just saying, destroy this temple of my body at the cross, and in three days I'll raise this temple up again. Yeah, but it's a little bit more than that, isn't it? For him to just say, as he's at the temple, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it again. It's almost like a pun or a word play, whatever you'd call it. It's a little foreshadow that one day the temple would be destroyed. And why would the temple be destroyed? Because the old covenant had come to an end. The sacrifices had come to an end. Read Hebrews 10 if you get the chance today. Hebrews 10 talks about how the sacrifices didn't work. They didn't do anything. They didn't accomplish anything. That's why they had to keep doing them over and over again. But Christ is the great high priest. And he makes sacrifice of himself. It was a perfect sacrifice. Done once and it's finished. The priest has done his work. The temple is not needed. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, what did the gospel accounts tell us? Inside the temple there, the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the world was torn in two. Now, access for Christians, through Christ, to the very presence of God. So Jesus is talking about a soon-coming judgment for those who are hearing him here in the first time, the first century. The destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But he's also mingling in here end-time judgment. End-time consummation, we could call it. There's growing dismay, the fourth part of this. In verse 25 and 26, you see there, men will be perplexed at the roaring of the sea. Men will be fainting, verse 26 says, from fear they'll be restless about what's going on in the heavens and the skies. We frightened. So a quick review of the warning signs. That's what we're after, right? What are the signs, Jesus? Well, he said, false teachers are a sign. False messiahs are a sign. He said, wars, those are a sign. Natural disasters are signs. 
He says persecution is a sign. Destruction of the temple, way back in AD 70, that was a sign in growing dismay. Now look at verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And you want to know when, don't you? You want to know what that then means. How soon after? How much time do we have then, Jesus? Are you saying there'll be more intense earthquakes, more frequent earthquakes? And we've had some frequent earthquakes here on planet Earth right lately. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you thought, ooh, maybe this is the end of the end. Maybe these are signs of the time that he's coming back. The the end is near. Well, earthquakes happened in Jesus' time as they do now. Now, Most of us have been taught, many of us believe that there'll be more frequent earthquakes at the end. There'll be more frequent wars at the end, right before the end of the end. But it doesn't say that here. Luke 21 doesn't say they'll be more frequent. We add that. We we think that. We bring that into the passage. It just says there'll be earthquakes. There'll be wars. Nation against nation. And these nations have been against other nations from Jesus' day through to our very own. Look at verse 9 of chapter 21 where we have another interpretive key. We're not there yet. Hold on. We need to dig just a bit more to find out what Jesus is after here. He says in verse 9, the end does not immediately follow after these things. Jesus doesn't give us a sign that we're an inch away, a month away, a year away. People have thought that it was near all through history. Some have thought it was so near they sold their stuff and went up to a mountain so they could be first to be caught up. And then after their long camping trip, they went back down because he didn't show up. They were wrong. They were mistaken. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, don't be misled by those who say the time is near. Some say the time is near, and they're only saying what Jesus said. They're right. And some are saying the time is near in such a way that Jesus says, don't listen to them. That's not right. Those who say, this has happened, this has happened, this has happened. Therefore, it is very, very, very near. Some are so bold to pin it down to a year. You know, a famous guy did that in 1988. I remember that year witnessing my friends a little bit more, uh, which probably was good, but it didn't happen, in case you didn't know. He didn't come back in 1988. I think Jesus' point is actually the opposite of how many of us take it. He's saying that these signs of earthquakes and plagues and famines are, yes, signs of the time, signs for sure. But he's saying that they aren't signs of the end of the end, the very end of time. They have been signs since Jesus first taught all this. So actually, here's what they're a sign of. The end hasn't happened yet. In the end, you'll know it. Listen to how it's put in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is the sister passage of Luke 21. Jesus probably teaching the same thing at the same time, recorded a little bit differently. And in verse 8, Jesus says these words, But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The baby's in the womb. It hasn't come out yet. Labor has started. 
it started when Jesus said this. Jesus is describing the, the, the period of time between his first coming and his second coming. And there is trembling, tremors, there's pain. But we don't know how long the labor is. So far, this has been a 2,000-year labor. Imagine that, ladies. So far, it's been 2,000 years, but it's still labor. In fact, when these things are happening, Jesus says it's the beginning of the labor pangs. But the end is not yet. These are proof that God hasn't yet come in judgment, but one day he will come. And until then, these are tremors of what's to come, so they're road signs. So here's where we go back to that, that question of I-70, coming from the Rocky Mountains down into Golden. Are the signs white noise to you? For some of you, you're obsessed with the signs. You jump to conclusions about the signs. You don't just see the signs as you drive down I-70 into Denver. You get out and you study the signs. You debate the grammar of the signs. and You do, you do a big map of all the signs. Jesus has given us signs. This isn't the only thing in the Bible, though. Maybe some of you study this out of a curiosity and a fascination that's something like your friend does with genealogies. You're just curious. You're just fascinated. So one question is, is your study about the signs of the times really causing you to pray more and commune with God more and live more holy? Or is it just a fascination and a curiosity for you? But there are others of us who don't think about his coming enough, who know that it's going to come, but we suspect it's not going to happen in our lifetime. I think Jesus taught us differently. I think Jesus taught us that it could. I think that's what's meant in verse 32 when he says, this generation will not pass away until you see these things. What does that mean? Well, one option is that he's just talking about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, which those who heard him would have been true of it. It was in their generation that the temple was destroyed. Or he's saying that, His coming is always just one generation away. I think it's the latter. His his coming is just one generation away. We should think it could happen in my lifetime. Now let me talk about some implications for Christ's followers. We believe that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, Romans 1 tells us. Romans 2 tells us that he's storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And so we ask ourselves, are we watching the road signs? Well, first, be ready. If so, be ready. It's one of the implications. Know whose side you're on. Know when he comes back that he'll be coming for your redemption, not for your destruction. We need to not be afraid if he's coming for our redemption. If we're ready, if we know that Christ is our substitute, that he died in our place, and when it says back in Luke 17 that he had to suffer many things, that was suffering for me, suffering in my place, suffering death on my behalf. If we believe that, then we shouldn't be afraid about the signs of the times. Jesus stresses that. He stresses it all through this passage. Don't be afraid when you see these things. I think of Psalm 46 in light of that. 
God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even if, what? A mountain be hurled into a sea. If that's a big mountain, it starts a tsunami. It's a big deal. It's unnerving to be in an earthquake, to feel the ground beneath you shake. But even if the earth moves, we will not fear. God is our refuge and strength. Be ready. And secondly, be happy and expectant. Verse 28 tells us not to be afraid. Just straighten up. Lift up your heads. Your redemption's drawing nigh. If the end is near, here's what I say. Don't look back. Don't look at stuff. Look to him. Know that this could be, if you're his, the best day. If he comes tonight, it would be the best night. Not the worst night. Be happy. Be expectant. See these birth pangs. Yes, to some, they're hints of judgment. But if you're in Christ, they're not hints of judgment. They're hints of glory and rescue. They're hints of him bringing bringing you to himself to complete the salvation he started in you. Third, be watchful, thoughtful. Be watchful. Be on the lookout. Yes, be seeing these signs for what they are. Not believing as you put newspaper and Bible together. Ha I know it's a week away. Ha, it's a month away. I know it'll happen this year. I know it's going to happen in my lifetime. No, you don't. On the one hand, live like it'll be a thousand years from now. So, so teach your kids. Train them. Raise them up. Buy that thing if you need it. Go to work. Don't max out your credit cards because Jesus is coming back this year. (laughs) On the other hand, be watchful. Be watchful. See the signs for what they are. They do say, it's coming. They do remind us, we're under judgment. They do tell us, the kingdom isn't here yet. If it were here, there'd be no more crying, no more tears, no more death. I love those no mores in Revelation. I'll love them all the more when they're actually here. Until then, death is here. Sickness is here. Pain, suffering is here. Earthquakes are here. And they tell us, the kingdom's here, but it's not yet in its fullness. Don't be distracted. Look at verse 34. Be on guard so your hearts will be not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and worries of life. Worries of life. Jesus said, don't be worried with the stuff of life. You say, Brian, I got worries. I got problems. I know. But the one who brings earthquakes, the one who can hurl a mountain into the sea and then tell you, don't be afraid, I got it, is the one sovereignly orchestrating the events of your life. Don't worry. Trust him. Don't let it overtake you like a trap. Be prayerful, he says in verse 36. Pray about this. Be on alert and praying. And then he tells us back a ways. We skipped it. Be bold and be confident. Be bold. Be confident. That section of persecution, Jesus told us in verse 13, you'll have opportunities to witness. When you're being persecuted, speak. And don't even worry about what you'll say. 
You, you might get some of it wrong, but get what you can right and speak. The Holy Spirit will lead you with what to say. Speak. If he's really coming back, let's speak like he is. And like souls depend on the witness of his people in the world. How will they believe unless they hear? How will they be saved unless they believe? They can't be saved unless they hear. And I think maybe they'll hear through you. If he's coming back, then let's pray like it. Let's preach like it. Let's live like it. Let's not look back. Let's not love stuff. Let's trust him. Let's, at times, huddle in together as a church to care for each other, nurture and fellowship together, teach and encourage each other. We need each other. The kingdom isn't yet here in its fullness, so he's given us each other. He's given us his spirit. He's given us great, great hope. So bow with me. And let's ask the Lord to make clear to us what we need to do in light of this. We maybe need to stop studying this topic a bit because it's become an idol or it's become a division between you and other Christians? Do we maybe need to study it more? To think on heaven more? To think of where we're going? To think of the end of time? To think about being ready more? To pray about this more? When's the last time you prayed like John at the end of Revelation? Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Maybe life isn't hard enough for you. If you're not praying that, and if life's hard enough and you're praying that, then thank God. Thank God that he's keeping you from beholding worthless things and quickening you in, your way, in his ways. Maybe you need to study the word more so that Christ is in your heart more and you proclaim him more quickly so that you're bold, that you don't care what people think and you don't care what they can do to you you must speak because he's the king and he's coming again and you love that person. You love those people and you can't help but speak the things which you've heard and seen and Christ commissions you to say. Fix your hope on something greater than you could ever imagine. Heaven. His presence. Communion with him. No more sickness, no more death, no more hurt, no more sin. Lord, I pray you'd give us hearts that want this more and hence long for your coming more. In the meantime, make us alert, sitting up straight, watching for our king comes at an hour we don't know. We thank you, Lord, you've given us reminders like, like earthquakes. Help us, Lord, to see these things and rejoice for yours, to know that our redemption draws near. Someday it'll come. The kingdom is already here. Spiritually speaking, one day it will come in its fullness. Give us confidence in that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.